Welcome back to Split Picks. If you're here, you probably know that we are talking about Japanese horror this year for our October Horror Series. Specifically, we are looking at Japanese horror, and this is part two of our episode looking at The Grudge. We just talked about Takashi Shimizu's 2002 film, Ju-On The Grudge. It's a weird franchise where they remade it for America, and that's where we're going next, but um, before we get there, Japanese horror is a gigantic topic. We're barely scratching the surface. I'm being joined again. Obviously, they're still here. We got from Clockwise, we got Bennett Glace, Frankie Venaria, and Jim Hickox. <laughs> Clockwise for the listener. For me, because I'm important, <laughs> Jim. Um, but I think I love Japanese horror films, and so I just want to take a moment. Do you want to each throw out one or two that you adore that we won't be covering on this series? Because it's, like I said, it's a giant topic. Uh, well, I mean, for me, I mean, Godzilla is very near and dear to my heart because uh, kind of bizarre to think of as a horror movie because Godzilla is not very scary in it. But obviously, all of the things that Godzilla represents in the movie and when the movie is made and all of that, I think the, the playfulness of it, but also the metaphor of it uh, strikes me in a certain way every time and all the other Godzilla movies are too. Uh, even the American ones. So. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think um, I, I'll honestly say, um, and listeners may be wondering, then why is he a guest on this podcast? I think Japanese film in general is a, <laughs> is a tad uh, tad bit of a blindside for me. Um, I have seen like two films from Akira Kurosawa. I've seen two films from Ozu. You know, like I, <laughs> I really, uh, I haven't seen a lot of the heavy hitters, but um, you know, I have seen a handful of Japanese horror films. Uh, a, a Page of Madness is a great uh, silent film from 1926 that's like really genuinely pretty scary and it doesn't have the, the, the version of it that exists today <laughs> you just wikipedia that right now <laughs> no I looked I went to my I went to my letterbox and I went to horror <laughs> and I sorted by rating and I was scrolling through and I was like what are some Japanese horror films that I've that I've uh, that I've logged. Uh, Takashi Shimizu himself has a um, has a great film called Marabito about oh, yeah. um, like a uh, uh, like a, sewer vampires, a videographer right? and like a video journalist who yeah like uh, uh, investigates yeah uh, like subway and like sewer vampires, um, <laughs> and it's pretty scary. Uh, there's uh, I, I don't know. It's been a while since I saw it. I saw it I think in like 2020, but. Uh, uh, on the the anthology film is great. Quite That's a criterion genius. classic, which also has you know a, a, I think a guy gets like attacked literally by like corporeal hair at one point, like hair that's alive. I think which uh, or maybe it's just a woman with long hair. I, I the hair that might be true. I remember the ears guy mostly. Oh yeah, yeah. It's a, a country with a obviously a long, great uh, history of uh, of horror films. Um, quite on, I'll agree. Quite on. I'm gonna sign off on quite on being a, a genius film that everyone should watch. Uh, also, uh, I anyone who knows me, or maybe I don't know, probably no one's listened to enough of these to to hear me to know my taste and things. Probably, I don't I don't know if I exist enough in the in the common sphere for people to know this. But my I tend to gravitate towards what I call party horror. Right, I'm I'm not that into things that are like just kind of gruesome and upsetting. I'm more into things where there's a lot of colors uh, and and then and then like juices fly out of someone. You know, that's that's more my speed. So there's a bunch of Japanese movies I love, but the two that sort of come to mind immediately that we're not going to be able to cover um, because they're both by people who didn't make a lot of movies. So there's there isn't enough to split picks either of them. Um, but one of them is a movie called Survive Style 5 Plus from the early 2000s. 
Uh, that's also a little bit anthology-ish. It's like kind of four stories that sort of tie together. But one of them's like about a guy who keeps murdering his girlfriend and then she keeps coming back from the dead and feeding him lots of food. Uh, and then they fight. It's genius. Uh, what part of it is, uh, uh, oh man, Vinny Jones of the uh, Guy Ritchie movies is a, is like a assassin who kills people with tiny, tiny swords. And part of it's about like a dad who gets hypnotized into being a chicken and then he's just a chicken for the rest. Of the- it's a great, it's a great movie. Um, and then the other one that, that comes to mind immediately for me is Wild Zero. I don't know if you guys have seen Wild Zero. It's kind it's a zombie alien movie starring Guitar Wolf, the whole band. Oh, Guitar you Wolf. sent that trailer. It looks amazing. It's incredible. It's incredible. It's also like uh, it has some it, like politically like pretty progressive for the early 2000s. Um, it deals with some stuff that that is uh, that it just sort of it's very light handed, but it, it deals with some stuff that's, that it deals with in a really nice way. Um, but mostly it's just like motorcycles and fire and rock and roll uh, and aliens. And the Guitar Wolf, the man, cuts cuts a UFO in half with a sword hidden inside of a guitar. It's just, it's a great movie. That sounds fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> I got to give two quick titles. Um, I think the first Japanese horror film I ever saw was House. Yeah, I yes. I don't know if a more fun movie exists than House. Um <laughs> I mean, in a nutshell, they were like, I think it was a studio was like, we want to make a competitive, like, Jaws-type movie. Mm. So essentially, Obayashi was given this big budget, and he was just like, I got you. And he made <laughs> an insane film. It's about, is I think it's six schoolgirls go to their one of their aunt's house, and she's like, kind of a witch vampire, but like, there's a cat that sings its own theme song <laughs> it's so great um but then the other one daniel bromfield wrote about noroi the curse and yeah. it's one of the rare like two plus hour horror films that is worth the runtime because it's about a reporter who has kind of like not a lot of leads on something he's tracking down but then it just gets progressively crazier and crazier. And like, it's, he has like just a documentary cameraman following him and like half the movie is him just turning around, like shaking his head to the camera. Like what's going on? Like, why am I doing this? And it's so good. Um, highly recommend that one. But I do think it's interesting. You mentioned quite on because I've been reading this book about Japanese horror. And essentially what this book is doing is looking at, the J-horror boom, which, you know, obviously was spurred on by The Ring and The Grudge, and how when that happened, especially, like, American critics and, like, you know, foreign critics just started looking at Japan and going, well, where'd the horror come from? Like, it's this. It's quite on. It's, you know, these... What Japan didn't really consider horror at the time, they were more just like, Mm. yeah, they're like George Melier films, but because they have elements of, like ghosts ghosts and like oh look there's like multiple layers of trick photography like that has to be horror but essentially that's i don't know it's just kind of revisionist history that has stuck and that is something i wish we had more time to dive into but anyway (laughs) we are back to talk about the u.s remake of the grudge and this is a really fascinating movie for many reasons but mostly why and how they made it so before diving into it jim hello i want to put you on the spot here so for those of you who don't know 
Jim, you are a great filmmaker. Um, I absolutely adore your short film, Slow Creep. And anyone who hasn't seen it, pause this real quick. We're going to be here when you unpause. Give Slow Creep a watch. It's on the internet. It's on the internet. But Jim, I only (laughs) bring this up because I kind of want to get your input on how the trajectory of the Grudge franchise unfolded. Because the Grudge did start as a short film. Sure. Which then turned into a shot on video film, which then was remade as a feature film, which then was remade by, you know, the US. Yeah. So I'm just curious, like if you're a director and someone's saying like, Hey, I love your short film, let's let's make something out of this, like, what do you do to turn that into a feature film? And then from there, how would you go about adapting something like Slow Creep? to fit another culture as the targeted audience yeah i mean that's a that's a huge question it is um, (laughs) i mean it's it's also it's a little bit it's a little bit different and this is this is going to sound very imperialistic but i don't mean it as personally imperialistic just like culturally that's the world we live in it's a little bit different adapting from another culture to america Mm -hmm. than it is adapting from an american film to another cultural film because most people in most cultures have seen Hollywood movies, right? Right. So they, they have a sort of built in idea of like, what's going to play in America, even if that's kooky and wrong. Whereas if it was like, you know, we want to, we want you to adapt uh, slow creep as a movie for Japan. um, Well, I feel like I've seen a lot of Japanese movies. I maybe have some guesses. Uh, I also one time at a market, someone was like, I'm looking for movies to distribute in Japan. A Japanese guy told me this. He was like, I'm looking for American movies to distribute in Japan. What you need to be distributed in Japan is bright colors and good music. Uh, so like, that's, that's my starting point. Um, okay. but, I, but I also think that the stuff that I tend to lean towards w- would, would be better in Japan maybe than America anyway. My, my sort of like aggressive, playful, uh, maximalist, colorful horror stuff. I think that audience tends to... So I think I, I would love to make a movie for Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is, is like, how much do you take from... Because I sort of mentioned this in the in our previous episode, but it feels like Shimizu is sort of slavish to the ideas he's already had with each new iteration. Um, he doesn't seem like he wants to invent much more, and he doesn't seem like he wants to stray too far from what he's already put on the ground. Whereas for me, I feel like if I'm being asked to go from a short film into particularly the first feature, but even past that, um, but particularly the first time, I feel like the thing that I want to preserve is tone above all, right? I want to maintain probably aesthetic joy that I found in the short and whatever uh, sort of tonally spoke to me in the short. But like if I was making a slow creep feature, I would change it a ton. I would change it so much. I would keep elements of of what I liked about the monster, but some of the things that I liked about the monster in Slow Creep aren't even in the short film. Um, there's a whole scene I had to cut that sort of establishes some rules uh, that don't make it in there. There's a lot. Buto dancing was one of my main references for the monster in that movie, uh, but but you would never know from watching it because the suit was so restrictive uh, that the the teenage girl inside of it couldn't. She like she had very limited motion, and so there's a lot that sort of comes out in production that that could be re-examined certainly i don't know if that's an appropriate answer no that makes sense i just like the example of slow creep because it has the haunted video you know the monster sure. that 
kind of doesn't really touch people, but you know, yeah. kills them. Yeah. <laughs> Certainly. I mean, I, w- I don't know how much of the runtime of slow creep is you watching the movie that they're watching in slow creep. It's probably 25%, right? I would probably ramp that up. I would make that whole movie. Okay. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I would spend more time with the video. I would make the monster, uh, more clear kind of what it's doing. Spookier. Okay. So more just rounding out the story is how you'd approach it. And yeah, I mean, I would do different characters. I would tell a different mm-hmm. story, but built around the same concept of a monster. Well, I bring this up because we're talking about the 2004 grudge today and pretty much everywhere you look to read about this film, they call it the first Japanese film made for American audiences. Weird. There are infinite implications in that statement, but in a nutshell, essentially Sam Raimi was a huge fan of the Juon films and he wanted to make a version of this movie for America. So, Jim, you've kind of been selected as our leader for this section. Can you just give us a bit of background into how and why this remake came to be? I mean, I, I, I can give you my impression based on the people involved and the space that it was made in. But it seems like the, uh, the Ring got made and then got its American remake. And the American remake made a ton of money in a way that the Japanese version simply couldn't because of being in Japanese, right? Because because an American audience is uh, tough to crack. Illiterate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, functionally illiterate. They like just won't look at subtitles. Um, which is funny because now everyone has subtitles on for everything all the time. Uh, yeah. But but still feel resistant to watching, at least in my classes, feel resistant to watching things that aren't in English. Very weird. Yeah, they have a subtitle turned on for the language they already are watching the yeah. movie and they understand. So it's very strange. Yeah, they just need like reinforcement. It's like they're all learning to read. <laughs> but, but right, so some people it seems really loved the early films in the franchise, right? The 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 curse, Jew on the curse, and so they were like, this is going to play well. And either my theory is they sort of made the American the Japanese theatrical version to get the contract for the American theatrical or maybe i'm wrong maybe they just wanted to make a japanese theatrical and so they did and then they attracted the interest of of american producers including san raimi and they made uh they made this mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so frankie bennett you two both mentioned you're not too fond of this one uh what's going on here though like story-wise how similar is it to the original just give me some rough readings on how, how this film lands with you. To me, something that we had kind of touched on in the last episode, and I would agree with Jim that and, and Bennett that it, the American characters seem largely a contrivance to get American audiences to, to like the movie, and I think that absolutely is true. Although, strange to have a famous actress and a famous actor, and then the other Americans are just like, yeah. Yeah. Despite that, I think it is kind of interesting. Um, like adding that obviously international element does add like an interesting wrinkle to it in that but it like also like we talked about in the last episode, it's another thing where it raises an idea that doesn't really follow through on because there's the wife of the guy she talks about like not knowing the language and feeling like very alienated being in Japan when they have to locate, relocate there for some strange reason uh, for his job, but it's not clear what he does. Yeah. Uh, something with numbers. 
something with numbers, something with being a number cruncher, which <laughs> all they really cared about. Yeah. Like, That's exactly as much as filmmakers know about real jobs. Exactly. <laughs> well, or, or Jim, fake, fake job. Sure. Fake yeah. <laughs> being a number cruncher. But yeah, like we were saying last time, it raises like an interesting idea of Japan itself as being like a spectral thing for the American characters of something they're interacting with without really interacting with it and kind of terrified by, which makes more sense if you're thinking of it as like a haunted house story that like mm -hmm. the city itself is haunted for them. But at the same time, the movie doesn't follow through on any of those things. And yeah, it does. It does sort of set that up, right? With the thing Bennett mentioned earlier with the there's like the Buddhist ritual that they see. And then there's also that sequence where Sarah Michelle Geller is like lost and like her Japanese is OK, but she's like a little bit scared and a little bit lost. And everyone's like, what's this white lady doing here? It does set that up for sure. Yeah. <laughs> It's funny that her name is Karen. Yeah, um, Karen in, from in the Karen Center. When you watch the movie, uh, and she's you know I don't know like a blonde white lady yeah. you know getting into trouble abroad. It's 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 a little funny. I, I'm gonna push back a little bit on the slander to the flashback couple. Clea Duvall and Grace Zabriskie are quite nobodies. I Wait, did... sorry, I just need to step on you for one second, Bennett. It's the weirdest part about the movie is watching Clea Duvall play an objectively straight woman. I I thought the same thing. I was but like, also what the same are they thing. Her doing? husband. William Mapather, it's weird to see him as a as a guy in a horror movie that stuff happens to. He has such a like a villainous visage yeah. and he always plays like creepy characters. Like in Lost he's the, the guy that's like embedded themselves like uh, he's the guy from the island like embedded himself among the uh, himself among the survivors. <laughs> like he he always plays creeps and weirdos. It's it's very strange to see him as like ostensibly like the protagonist for or you know, a, a, a ancillary protagonist for this this sequence of the film. Also Ted Raimi's there. Oh, Ted Raby's character's name is Alex Jones, by the way. I'm about to take a screenshot of this, and I'm about to tweet, whoa! Like, totally out of context, Ted Raby is Alex That's Jones. That's so what people good. Say. <laughs> oh, sorry, one more thing about Ted Raby's character, and I was actually going to say this uh, toward the end of the last episode. It's interesting. They actually toned down a guy at her work being a creep in the American yeah. remake, which I thought would be something that they would tone up. Like, Ted Raby sort of, uh, there's a, you could tell there's a little bit of like, why are you asking when he asks her like if she's free that afternoon? But it's mm -hmm. not like as explicit as uh, in the Japanese version when he's, you know, like full on like asking her to go out. Ted Raimi, great to see him. Apparently he's wearing the exact same Love clothes that he was him. wearing in um, uh, Spider-Man 2, someone said on Letterboxd, which is pretty funny. Cute. Um, that could be the CinemaSins guy, and, and, and to be fair, I haven't eaten there meat in like, you know, seven years, but she smells the ramen to identify what flavor it is. Does that, could you yeah, smell she the chicken or beef? In the dry ramen, dry ramen in the grocery store. Like she's never seen ramen in a bowl before or any kind of noodles in a bowl. Doesn't it usually have a what picture a of like the meat that's in it, on it? Yeah. Like, in my experience, yes. I don't know. Uh, I thought that very strange. So everything about this version is more extreme. Um, Bill Pullman makes a brief cameo to open the film. I was so excited. It starts with Bill Pullman. I didn't know anything about the movie. I, I had just written down, whoa, Sam Raimi was involved with this. And then Bill Pullman shows up and I was like, what a dream, Bill Pullman. And then immediately he jumps off a balcony and explodes on the street. And I was <laughs> like, oh, okay. When I saw in the opening credits that he got the the with or the and, I figured he was probably mm. going to be like the Drew Barrymore. He was going to get, you know, dispatched pretty quickly. But sure. um, yeah, I, I was very surprised to see him. Um, 
it, it's interesting how much more they lean into the hair. Speaking of how much more extreme this movie is, I mean, like I think the credits are like somewhat hair based. Oh yeah, there's hair, strange. and then it's there's there's a full on like corporeal like hair, like just like a hairball sort of like monster at one point, which is very much not the case in the first film. The hair is not even that big in the first film. There is one scene in the first movie. There's a few where like her it's head kind of comes. But it's not, there's a few you know. where her head kind of comes out of places, but there's one in particular when she's in the bathroom before we get to the like uh, security camera sequence she's in the bathroom and as she's leaving i guess it's kayako comes out of the bathroom stall but it's clearly just like a wig on a stick the way it moves is so inhuman yeah. i found that one really striking yeah it's just it's just hair it's it's like the one time in the first movie that i found the hair to be an element but you're right in the second one they're they're like Hair, scary hair, <laughs> and we mentioned. I mentioned this in the last episode. It seems like a a, a post ring thing. How much yes. they leaned into the hair here, um, and I'm surprised they didn't lean more into like the videotape aesthetic, like creepy staticy yeah. stuff. Um, yeah, because it's there. It's there in all of them, right? They all have the security camera f- sequence. They could have done. I, you know, they uh, they add obviously to. I think part of adding Sarah Michelle Gellar's character and the sort of like mystery, like figuring it out element is also a little bit more of like a ringification of it. Sure. I definitely in, the, in that sequence, right, with the with Sarah Michelle Geller looking at the security camera, and the and the ghost comes right up to the camera, and oh, then the whole so screen corny. turns black, and then the eyeballs open. Love it. Uh, it. I watched this one first, so I was like, "Yeah, delightful." And then they do the same thing in the 2002, and I was like, "Still delightful." But the first time I thought, I I was like, "Oh, is this ghost gonna ring out of this TV?" I thought for sure that was what was. I saying. thought it too. Yeah. Because the crawling like that's in the ring too. Um, yeah. I, I uh, th- this movie is addicted to pairing effective sequences with like um, it, following effective sequences immediately with like really hokey bad sequences. Like when yeah. Clea Duvall gets killed, or you know, yeah. almost like up to you know, basically killed, all but sure. killed. Um, you know, she walks upstairs and the door closes behind her. You know, creepy, subtle. I imagine that really popped in the movie theater. You know, I imagine that was a real good like jump scare, the door slamming, uh, good stuff. That's followed uh, immediately by. <laughs> a Toshio jump scare that is so fucking corny. Like I said, I fall for like 90% of jump scares. That's one where I was like, oh, come on, folks. And I don't think this one means for you to laugh with it at all. No. I think this one is deadly serious. Yeah. Uh, and, and later on, you know, the the, the uh, elevator sequence uh, scare that, that's borrowed and even made more extreme uh, is then followed by her seeing like a face in the in the window on the bus, which is incredibly corny. Like, was it the fucking Lion King? Come on. That, that scene, it's like it's terrible. corny, and then it turns into like a CGI version of Sarah Michelle Gellar reflected in the window that's way creepier than oh, when it was the bad. ghost. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really unsettling when the ghost leaps, I found. So I'm going to finish my question here real fast. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so, no way. you got the goon squad. Like I said, everything in this is just like turned up a notch or three. I mean, like the one that made me just like really you're doing that is the first time we see Toshio. He's holding the cat and it has two different color eyes. It's like, all right, you're really going for it, aren't you? Um, <laughs> but they do recreate most of the same scenes. So I'm just curious, mm-hmm. how do you feel the style of horror compares to the original version? It felt mostly the same to me <laughs> it's, it feels almost like a shot for shot remake at times yeah. he really you know he you know moves the camera around pretty deliberately there's a lot of like you know characters in like one half of the frame a lot of negative space to either side i think the first kill when like yoko gets pulled up into like this sort of i don't know not this mm. it's not quite an attic the murder attic. you're really supposed to go up there the, like the roof crawl space uh is pretty scary and i don't really think that that's well that was also out of the, that's is that right out of the the that's, it is out of the first one, yeah. 
It just happens way later into a different character. <laughs> it's it's effective as a, as an opening, and it really kind of sets the stakes. And I think it's also in keeping with the kind of extremity. Like it's a pretty it's a pretty jarring. Like oh okay, you know we're we're it's we're not it's also here. it put me in a weird place where at the beginning of the movie it's all white people in a place where there's Japanese signage. And I was like, I don't know if we're in like Japantown, Chicago, or if we're in Japan for a minute. And then eventually it became clear that we were in Japan. But then it was like Yoko, that caretaker, right? Shows up at the house and is bopping around and like just goes up and like knows that that attic door is inside a closet in a, in a bedroom. And I was yeah. like, is this a thing that would be normal in Japan? Or does she have some secret knowledge of this house? It, it started off with some things that sort of threw me for a loop as, as American audience, where I was like, I don't know if this is like standard Jap. Like if, you know, if I was walking through an American house and I saw a rectangle in the ceiling with a, with a string, with a plastic thing hanging down, I would be like, Oh, there's an attic up there. But it was like inside a closet in a, anyway, I, I was like, is it weird that she knows that this murder attic exists or <laughs> would everyone know that it's there? You know, but it is also, yeah, I agree. It's effective. She gets like yanked up. into it. I mean, I, I agree with Jim, the, the kind of disorienting part of it. And it, I think we mentioned this on the last episode or hinted at it, that, the city is more part of this movie than yeah. I feel like in the first one. And even with Bill Pullman's like suicide at the beginning, there's like a vertiginous aspect to it where it feels like it's more about, you know, that at least introduces like a more disorienting element that I think then complements what, what Jim is saying. And, and imagine if their choice had been, we're just going to have Sarah Michelle Geller, right? Yeah. She's the American and she's in Japan, and no one else is a white person who understands and can help her translate cultural elements, right? Then then they could have really leaned into that idea of, like, there are things that you, the American audience, just aren't going to fully grok, right? I was just going to say that I like the Pullman thing, too, as another example of kind of raising the stakes from the start. Like, it establishes from the beginning that The Grudge is, it, it's not just a haunted house movie, right? The the curse, you know, can, can live in other people outside of the... Did any you know, of you watch house. this one first? No. no. This movie makes no effort to explain what the grudge is. I spent half the movie not knowing what what the basic premise of the movie was. Jim, um, you I missed mean, the title card. <laughs> no, it's on all the other ones. I don't think it's on this one. Yes, the thing it where it's like, is it? Yeah. Where it says like, uh, I was, too, the I was looking like at the hair. Rage. I was looking at the yeah. hair. You were too. No, that's the, the 2020. 2020 is where the blood drips down the. the no, no, words. this one too. They like highlight Does the it? words. The 2021 oh. is so good. Oh, I can't wait. I to guess I, I guess I missed that because I didn't understand the fundamental premise for a while. Um, and then again, as I said earlier in the last episode, right? It's it's also the rules feel like they continually change in all of these movies where like at first it feels like they're the the house is haunted and then they're like but also the ghost can appear wherever and also it can be anybody uh and also it can call you on the phone and appear on your tv and so it just sort of is constantly shifting under your feet Mm. um in a way where i like don't again i don't know if this is like how many rules are there for a juan in traditional japanese culture that that i simply am unaware of and how much is the movie just doing whatever it wants to do, you know? I think where I felt really frustrated with the movie was when they do have that, you know, replay scene of Sarah Michelle Geller and Bill Pullman being in the room there, you know, in different timelines or whatever. Yeah. Like, to me, that something about that scene, speaking to, I think, um, what we said a second ago about this being a more serious-minded movie, like something about that scene registered as very like mournful, like sad to me, and that the original one didn't as much. 
And I think part of it had to do with with exactly the idea that they are Americans who are out literally out of place and kind of disembodied in this space. And I it annoyed me that there was not a real relationship between, or if there was, I sure. obviously missed it. There was not a relationship between Bill Pullman and Sarah Michelle Geller and it, other than them being American and white people. Uh, so I felt like, again, we keep our, I keep harping on the point that you brought up, Jim, which is that all of these things are introduced and never explored. Well, it also doesn't, the, the 2002 one pretty effectively, right? That scene is the parallel to the scene in the first one where the detective sees the 10 years later girls, right? Which is when in that movie it sort of shifts, it shifts from being sort of fragmented into being, for me, like a little sublime in its structure where you're like, oh, it's getting, it's shattered time through this space. Whereas in this one, it feels, it feels more like there is supposed to be a connection, but you're right, there isn't really. It's the Bill Pullman story is where in this movie you would get that also it's pulling in stuff that's fully disjointed from everything else, but it just doesn't land the feeling that it is fully disjointed. So it ends up feeling more like we're sort of following through Sarah Michelle Geller's exploration of these ideas. And that's what's cueing us into the other stories, but it doesn't, it just doesn't land as being connected enough or being disjointed enough to be uh, wild. No, she, her finding out so much of the whole Bill Pullman story right there at the very end like from yeah. his ghost like you said that, that that crossing time thing like seeing like you know the past is sublime in the original and here it's just like what did like did they have to did, were they rushing to finish the fucking screenplay good lord <laughs> speaking of written by steven susco who would go on to write and direct unfriended dark web ladies and gentlemen yeah. um I, I i do have a question is the is yoko yoko uh scares ted ramey and i guess then kills him and her he, she turns around and the jump scare is like her face is like split in half is that yeah. a new image for this film i, I feel no, like it is that's from no, the short film too? that's from uh, the short film the girl with her jaw ripped off oh you're right yeah the the first one right no new images <laughs> once we've made those two short films we're done that's interesting so the reason i ask about how the style of horror compares is because i watched these two back to back and in doing that, I was shocked by how rushed the American version mm. felt. Like all of the scary scenes, it seemed like they just took out all of the tension and were like, <laughs> let's just get to the end of this, okay? Like it's really scary for us, like shooting it. Like let's just get it over with. Um, Maybe they were scared, yeah. I know, yeah. but like I mentioned that I Well, at loved... that point they know the house is haunted, right? They all, they're like, I don't want to be in this location <laughs> <Get out of laughs> shooting. <laughs> but I mentioned the scene with, you know, when Kayako's in the bed with... Yeah, I think it's Rika. No, no, it's not Rika. It's her sister, I think. With the sister. Yes. The sister of the husband. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. They redo that scene, but mm-hmm. there's no TV. Like, she literally right. just gets in bed, and it's like nothing is... There's no, like, okay, maybe things are okay. Like, let's turn on the and TV. It feels even more inexplicable why she would get into her bed. Right. She's yeah. just received a phone call and hurled her phone into the into the hallway. And then she's like, screw this. I'm getting in my cozy bed. Yeah. And it's just over. Like, I feel yeah. like a lot of yeah, this and then she film, just sucked in. They just kind of rushed through a lot of the best parts. Like, I don't I just didn't think the staircase is as scary. Um, I mean, it's just... I don't know. I think something about the way Kayako moves in the first one, that's just like, oh, <laughs> she's like dead and going to take us all with her. I, yeah. It's just a little too smooth in this one. It's hard for me because I watched this one first, so I didn't have that context. So okay. for me, everything in it felt, I mean, it did feel 
fairly flavorless, right? Yeah. Uh, it, it felt like it was doing some interesting things, but they're all interesting things that are also done in the first movie because it's basically the same as the first movie, uh, but with some white people. Um, yeah. And in a slightly different order, and and minus the sorority girls. That's really the big sadness for me. I When I was watching this the first one, because I watched that second, I was like, I would edit these two movies together and make one better movie because there's no reason yeah. you couldn't. They, yeah. They're shooting the same they house, stay in the same place, <laughs> yeah. in the same place. Yeah, I, I, I think that what is the detective talking about? Like three of his colleagues disappearing. Is that supposed to be like this movie's version of the girls like disappearing? I guess. I, well, no, that happens in the first one too. Oh no, but it happens. He murders them, in the, or no, he like abandons them in the house right after he sees his daughter. There's like two other cops that come in, and he's like, "Peace out, assholes!" And he runs away, and they get murdered by Kayaka. <laughs> Uh, just one more, and it's a, another cinema sins complaint. I'm sorry. When she's, when she's like researching about Bill Pullman, and she finds out that he killed himself, and like finds out, you know, like where he lived, the fucking headline is "American Professor Throws Himself Off of Building." Do you think that would be the headline in a fucking newspaper about someone committing suicide? Might you think they'd be a little more delicate than "Throws Himself Off of Building"? Excuse me, cinema sins. Ding. <laughs> Sorry. They they had a film writer do the headline at that. <laughs> so the biggest difference between the American and Japanese version is the approach to the ghosts. Because Takashi Shimizu has said when he made the original Japanese version, the ghosts were supposed to be kind of harkening back to traditional Japanese ghosts where they're just kind of, they don't touch you. They're scary. They're in the mm-hmm. room. So he calls Japanese horror a more feminine version of horror where he says the scary part is the impending sense of intangible doom. And it's all about forcing just people... like women. <laughs> well, it's just more about like forcing people to think about negative emotions that are forcing the ghost to haunt. So in a way it's, you know, mm. empathy is involved because you're thinking about the ghost, not, and it's not really going to happen in the U.S. Um, but then he says the U.S., it's more about masculine horror, where the ghosts are only scary if they touch, attack, and kill you. You know, it's like, it's very in your face, and oh, I'm going to grab your leg. Um, what do you feel are some of the major differences between the ghosts in these films, and which do you feel is more effective? This is, again, uh, an effect of me watching these in inverse order, I think, is that it took me a little while to realize that about the 2002 one. Because in this one, they definitely do a lot of the time. Like I said earlier, it's not very... I, I, I know, Bennett, you're saying jump scare a lot. I don't feel like it's very jump scary, this movie. I feel like the ghosts, again, are just kind of present, but not like in a sudden, loud way that, that they are in a lot of movies, like the 2020. But they do definitely, like lurch at people and like maybe like shove or like grab a guy and pull him into a tub or whatever right um they do sort of aggress is that a word um where in the in then when i watched the 2002 one later it took me most of the movie to realize that the ghosts don't they just kind of show up and it makes it makes the movie much more cosmic right it's much more just about like you are gonna relive this horror until you die uh and not like you're going to be actively smashed into a rock by, by by an assailant that can appear anytime, anywhere, right? I, th- th- To a degree, right? We do see, like, that sister get yanked down into the bed. We do see, like, the hand in the hair. There is definitely some aggression in the 2002 one also, but the ending sort of makes it feel, right? Like, where it feels like it's just about sort of this personal realization that, like, I am going to be haunted by this forever, therefore I must die. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we crucially don't see it infecting other people and, like, leading them to kill 
other people like we yeah. do in uh you know the 2020 film and also the grudge too uh spoilers if you guys are interested in watching the grudge too you do see it uh uh you know infecting other people and, and filling them with murderous rage um i, I think one true? of the things this film yeah yeah there's uh it, it, it opens with this there's like this uh there's this couple in it that are uh like i think i, I don't know which of them is I guess eventually they're both infected with it, and she dumps bacon grease on his head. It's the really nice. it's the one image from from the Grudge Part Two that's going to stick with me. And then she puts the hot pan right on the table again, not to be the CinemaSins guy, but come on, good lord. Um, I think the one thing that this movie probably actually does, or you know, in my opinion, does the most effectively of any of them. I do think the the, the creepy crawling is the creepiest in mm. this in this movie. It's the most reminiscent of like stop motion animation. It's like the creakiest. Um, and that's, I don't know, that's saying something. It's the best I've seen that done, and I've seen it done quite often. Yeah. Yeah, it does do some where it's, like, clearly the they're playing with, like, camera speed and stuff. There's, like, yeah, there's, like, a twitchiness to it. That's nice. And I imagine if I had seen that in, like, 2004. Well, I, I, if I had seen it in 2004 as a 10-year-old, I might have fucking died. But if I, yeah. let's say, let's, let's, let's like change the timeline, and I'm, like, 16, and I saw that mo- this movie in 2004, I would have been like, whoa, you know. It's interesting to me because you brought up the the um, the fact that the TV is not in it and it's not part of it, and that was such a. I think in the original, what bothered me so much about that moment was that before it like gets all fucked up and like like the newscaster is like speaking in gibberish before that happens, like it's a bunch of it's parts of it. It's, it's, like, it's Japanese, Frankie. It's Japanese. Okay. Right. <laughs> I. <laughs> it, okay. There's some. <laughs> it might not be japanese i don't know (laughs) won't you look like an asshole (laughs) so it's it's just so strange to me that that moment was not in it but i i as like a for americans who love their media so much uh but Mm. although i didn't find anything scary about either of them really (laughs) um because I did watch this in the right order. I, the, the ghosts this time around just felt like, like when you see the CGI ghosts, like the spirit. Again, yeah, both movies, right? There's one big CGI scene and you're like, why are you doing it's this? Why, shit, they really think, yeah, just yeah. The, the American one, especially though, yeah. it has no, it, I mean, it's, I, I, Craig, I, I understand entirely about like the more masculine or like aggressive horror, component, which is why it is so hilarious that it is the most aggressively CGI and yeah. not threatening in any way goes that it isn't either of the movies. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, I mean, like in the first scene, like in the attic, you know, she pokes mm-hmm. her head up, and in the Japanese one, she sees the face with the lighter and she goes, oh! and dies you know like oh that was horrifying i had a heart attack um but yeah. this one it's like the ghost pulls Yanks her, her up, up. And it's like yeah. oh, okay you're you're doing that <laughs> all right i just think this movie's kind of too I, see, I would say being yanked up into an attic is not that different from being yanked down into a bed i don't know it's just it's lame <laughs> <laughs> but um I, this, this movie just feels so constrained to me and like the scene where I was like, I really want this to go off the rails is after uh, the sister, you know, she sees the ghost in the office building and it's like, oh, I'm going to run home. I really wanted it to turn into like the first scene of Suspiria there where she opens the door. It and almost like, does. I want it, like crazy aesthetically, wind blowing. <laughs> aesthetically, it feels like they're absolutely riffing on that scene where she goes out and it's office building, the doors whip open, it's raining, she gets it's in the cab, raining. we see her in the cab, all it's of that. Raining. I. Ru- 
I wrote that down. Oh, really? In no. my brain, it's raining. Because right? it feels it so much be. like they're doing Suspiria, but they're just not. It's, I, all of these movies, and I mean no discredit to Shimizu, he's a talented man with a with a lovely career making movies. But in addition to never really pushing it forward, which I just don't understand, uh, he also doesn't feel like he has any really powerful aesthetic drive. I feel like he has some really nice concepts in all of these, but like the 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 2002 one, the things that I think make the aesthetics of it creepy are just the cheapness, the things the, the items they could afford to use. And then in this movie, it's still kind of shot the same way but using nicer cameras and it just ends up aesthetically kind of flavorless, which, you know, I mean, I I think all three of these movies are pretty good. Uh, and I would recommend any of them to someone who's looking for I don't know, a grudge. But, you know, if if someone had been pushing a flavor like Suspiria, right? It, my, my takeaway note, my final note in my notebook on this one was, this movie is weird, but it would have been better weirder, right? Yeah. It's like, it's true. Yeah. The, the heart of it has some weirdness in it, but it just like doesn't feel like there's the follow through. I also suspect, I was I was like all of the people who are white are their performance is so flat. And I wonder if that's just because he was not super familiar with directing American actors or working with, with English speakers, but it feels like there's, it feels like making Shimizu do the remake might've been a disservice to both him and the film. Mm -hmm. I don't disagree. You should definitely watch the grudge too. I I think you'll, I think you'll enjoy it. It it definitely pushes it. Yeah. That's my suspicion is that that was the best one. I mean, it's like the, you'll probably feel like it's like a, you know, the 2020 directed by a better director, you know? I mean, it's not as grim as, it's not as gross as the 2020 sure. one, but there's, there's this scene where one of the central family's, like, daughter's friend, she, like, knocks on her door, and when she answers, the friend is, like, drinking, like, a full, like, carton of milk, or, like, a gallon <laughs> of milk, or, you know, like, a quart, and then she starts puking it back up into the bottle. It's so fucking gross. <laughs> Um, and again, that's like an example of like a scene that's going to stick with me. And you can't say that not every horror movie has one of those. And The Grudge 2 certainly has one of those. I don't think The Grudge 2004 has one of those. I mean, I sure. I think the trailer was honestly more effective than the film. Because I'm still thinking about the trailer. All the most iconic yeah. moments in The Grudge 2004 are also in The Grudge 2002, right? We get the, they we get the, the, the hair and the, the hand and the hair again. We get the all the same. They beats. change the they change the meow in the trailer. Um, in the in the trailer, I remember the kid opens his mouth and does a pretty like normal like meow. Does a whale noise. <laughs> and uh, in the in the movie when he does it, in confronting uh, William Mapath or Mapother, however you pronounce it, uh, it's more of like a screech. Uh, mm. So they they toned it down for the trailer, if I remember Interesting. correctly. Now it has been like twenty years since I saw the trailer, so who knows? But so Jim, I'm glad you mentioned your final note on the page because uh-huh. I will be completely honest. Watching it this time, I fell asleep, and the final note I had just says bus scene, Kayako and window, bad, does not <laughs> improve. <laughs> so I think- you should watch the next eight seconds because when it turns back into Sarah Michelle Keller. <laughs> spooky oh i saw it I, I i fell asleep after that part but um i think this will probably be the last question to close out this section because this will transition into the next film um so one of the studio's goals with this version is they wanted to make sure they hit a pg-13 rating Ooh. i mean pg-13 horror films and really comedies too they just seem to be rarer these days so i'm just wondering what you all think aiming for a specific rating what does that do for the constraints of making a film, and is it for better or worse? 
Uh, I mean, I don't know. I don't think a film necessarily has to be like really like gory or full of like nudity or anything to be any good. But I disagree. Know, it's never a good. It's never. Yeah, I mean, it it always helps, right? And it's it's never a good thing when there's like a like a you know a wall around like what a movie can can feature, um, particularly if it's a horror movie or a comedy, right? Things that you want to be kind of extreme. I mean, I'm broadly against the MPAA. You know, I don't. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. I don't like that we force movies to be rated in order to play in most theaters. I think that it is uh, broadly a destructive force. But also, like a PG thirteen, you can still do most stuff. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's great PG thirteen horror movies, of course. I mean, I don't know. M Night Shyamalan has gone really far with PG thirteen ratings. Like old is PG thirteen. Ooh, like scary trees. Surprised. Well, all right. <laughs> I mean, like you know, the happening is a great movie, by the way. That was his first R rated movie. I'll have you know. So. You, I, I did my research. Why don't you do yours? Right? <laughs> um, I I also I grew up in the era of uh, of difficult PGs, right? I mean, PG thirteen was invented Oops, when yeah. I was a young young boy because but of the there were PGs, right? Yeah, yeah, but there were still a lot of like all the VHS tapes I was getting when I was a kid were PG, but like on the rough side of PG. And I I think that that is such a beautiful space. That's where I I would live there forever if I could. So for me, I don't know, PG-13 constraints feel like, it feels like a great way to push what you can show to a child to the max. Mm-hmm. I mean, it seems like there is a real uh, contradiction with what she needs to thought the American intention for like horror or yeah. ghost was and is kind of, I guess, native appreciation for ghosts because you could do that more feminine, empathetic, yeah. And like that would be appropriate for PG thirteen to just like Jim was saying, have a character in a room just staring at you, and that's all you really you don't need for much. You know, the implied violence or you know terror or empathy, all of that is more artistically interesting than oh you know the more in the jump scare aggressive kind of territory. Or you know not, again, not that this movie is very scary or violent or gory or any of that but it's trying to be or you know there it has more of that maybe than the original yeah i wonder if it's do you think that was just a perception he had about america and that he leaned into when he was making or do you think sam raimi or one of the other producers was like we want you to remake this movie but for america the ghosts have to strangle people i think that was a big part of it yeah, that's too bad, because if it were a more direct remake, right, if it were pretty much just the 2002 movie, but with a nicer camera and in English, I think it would probably I mean, I, I want to say do better or have done better, but I guess it did really well because uh, they, you know, it made a ton of money. But <laughs> apparently they announced the sequel like the same weekend, like sure. Sunday <laughs> of the opening weekend. They were like, we're doing the grudge, too. <laughs> well, it was also probably incredibly cheap. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, I think I don't know. I think it costs like thirty, forty million dollars or something. Yeah, oh, really? I think I think it, I think it might have made its budget in like the opening weekend. Let's see. It made a lot. That's Let's more than I would have guessed. No, ten million. Hey, that's what I would have guessed. Yeah. <laughs> it also, it also, I'm sure was fast. You know, fast and cheap to shoot. So yeah, yeah. They'd, they'd made it before. <laughs> Yeah, right. Yeah, they'd already done the whole thing. A, a funny thing about the second one is that it, it weirdly has the most... Um, I, I, I've compared uh, 
I, I compared that I think the music and the, the the original to Masters of Horror. The second one, I swear to God, has like the same fucking opening credit sequence as Master of Horror <laughs> with like the dripping blood. It's it's very hokey. It's it's funny. The best film in the series has arguably the worst, or you know, the best film in the original series has sure. undoubtedly the worst opening credits. And that's saying something because the hair credits stink. <laughs> Pretty terrible. Pretty bad. They're yeah. fucking bad. What is this fucking Spider Man? Like, cut it out. <laughs> it, uh, the Sam Raimi connection. It, it is basically the same fucking thing. It's remember the. It's like the web thing. I honestly, that was yeah. it. They were probably like, we got to use this web animation again. Yeah. Make these webs <laughs> black. We're doing hair. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to throw one last quote at you here because I thought this was just kind of fascinating. Um, so when Takashi Shimizu was approached about doing the remake, he said. This is a quote here. He says, when I first got the offer to direct the remake, I didn't want to do it because I didn't understand why they wanted to use the same director. But if oh, I funny. Could, he said, but if I could use the same characters of Kayako and Toshio for the remake, I would do it because in my opinion, I can only make dark haired Japanese women scary, not American women. The studio was fine with that. <laughs> so Okay. Weird. I just kind of <laughs> like that. Yeah. <laughs> I think we are probably going to keep talking about this grudge, so I'm going to suggest we pivot into the 2020 grudge. Does that sound good? Yeah. Okay. Sounds good. Part of the reason I ask about the ratings for the previous grudge, where they aim for the PG-13 is because from what I read, one of the like guiding reasons for making this 2020 version is they really wanted an R-rated grudge. This is something Sam Raimi... Who? Had... <laughs> Sam Raimi. Uh, <laughs> Who ordered this? I, I, they had a script in the works, and I guess when Nicholas Pesh came in and started talking with them about another project, he mentioned, oh, like I'm such a big fan of the grudge. And they were like, you know, we're actually working on another grudge right now. And so he started talking about, well, you know, I think if I were to make a grudge, like I would, I'd kind of harken back to the more episodic approach where it's more of an anthology film and they let him do it. And that makes me really curious about what they were writing. If it wasn't going to be kind of episodic because that sounds like not a grudge film. <laughs> I don't know if I want to know. <laughs> <laughs> so it seems like with any horror film, when there's success, it's just bound for enfranchisement. I mean, I think it's natural for a director to start thinking about what the franchise may become. And Takashi Shimizu said in early interviews that his idea for keeping the grudge alive as a franchise would be to move the curse to different parts of the world. This is essentially what the 2020 grudge does. It's about the curse making its way to the u.s and it it, it finds a home um <laughs> although shimizu is not involved in the film it is again produced by sam raimi um bennett you've kind of already introduced us to this film so i think my first question for you is you gave this four stars on letterboxd wait out of how many five <laughs> <laughs> what stands out to you about this film and what led you to rate it the highest of all three yeah, I think this is the only of the Grudge films you would say has good acting. I think this is the only of the Grudge films that you would say is at all aesthetically distinctive. I think this is, you know, it's the grimmest, and that's kind of saying something, uh, of the franchise. It's the grossest. I don't know. It's it, it's the first one of these to really kind of feel like it was taking the the sort of curse in, in all the directions it could take it. Like, even though it's staying uh, situated m more or less within one house... 
uh, we kind of see it that we see the haunting take on a kind of a lot of different forms and there are a lot of different types of, of, of kills. Um, it, uh, call it the prestige TVification of the grudge, but I really think the, uh, the, the episodic, the, the stories are weaved together in like a fun way. It really feels like Andrea Riseborough was sort of solving a crime across like place and time. And she's the cop. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah the uh, Muldoon, I think, uh, she's mm. the, the sort of primary character, the one we kind of, not the one we begin on, the one we end on. Um, and begin on. Well, I think technically the first person we see is Fiona, um, the the nurse who kind of precedes Yoko. Oh, right, Japan. right. We, um, yeah, so I should, I, I give you a sense, for the, for the sake of the listener, let me give you a sense of kind of how this movie relates to uh, Shimizu's parafilms. So this is set in like 04, 05, 06 in uh, small town Pennsylvania. So it kind of both begins and kind of happens during and after the, the Paris Sarah Michelle Geller films. We, we open on like a nurse coming out of the house and she she's talking to the phone she's leaving a message for yoko you know the nurse will obviously see get killed there saying like it, it sounds like something's off she's like uh you know I need, I need to go back to my family she there's like a great jump scare of like a hand jumping out of the garbage and she comes back and of course kills her family so like in like in the grudge too we're seeing the grudge kind of infect people and lead them to kind of you know murderous violence and um it's interesting to see someone like experiment with it it feels it, it suggests um you know, not that I'm a big fan of franchise filmmaking, it suggests a world in which there is, you know, like a grudge series of films where like different auteurs, you know, step up to the plate. Um, Nicholas Pesh is a guy, I don't know if you're, either of you is fam- are familiar with his other two films, uh, mm-hmm. Eyes of My Mother and uh, Piercing. They're both not A24 movies, but you would kind of think they were because they're sort of like, you know, I mean, shoot me. They're, they're, they're kind of elevated horror. Uh, I remember seeing uh, posters and stuff for Eyes of My Mother I remember hearing it's, people um, talk about it, but I never saw it. It's like polarizing, you know. Some people think it's like style over substance in a bad way. I think I gave it like a three stars on Letterbox. It's a real. He's a. Would you say this is his best movie? Yes. Oh, yeah. Okay. With a with a bullet. Yes. Great. That I won't bother. <laughs> this movie. Um, one of the things too that I I think one of my favorite things about it, I like I talked about, is it, it's 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 grossness. How like mean spirited yeah. it is. Um, there's a the film really is not afraid to swing pretty wildly um in in not necessarily in tone but in like sentiment um there there's a scene where you know a a couple that lives in the haunted house uh you know it's a husband and wife they've been married for almost 50 years she's got dementia and he's you know jackie weaver is there to help her like commit assisted suicide and uh she is like your house is haunted you gotta get the fuck out of here and he's like oh i know you know i i like i kind of like it it's like comforting you know it makes me think that maybe she'll be around but we go right from that like sentimental scene to like jackie weaver getting in like a horrible car accident and like her arm like coming off i uh, i don't know i i like that it's a movie that kind of that does the it's not afraid to kind of swing between those things that's i don't know it's 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 in keeping with the uh yeah increasingly bad-natured, mean-spirited, sort of twisted nature of it. Uh, I loved is, that. Uh, very post-Saw touch, I might say. Sorry. No, I was just going to say, I, I loved that sequence. I loved it that it went in that direction of exploring other meanings the haunted house might have for people. Exactly. It does feel like it would have been more powerful in a movie that operated like the first one where the ghosts are just there, right? Mm-hmm. Where he, where they're not like actively trying to murder you. Uh, where he could have been like, no, look, these ghosts are just kind of around. I wish my wife would just be around after she dies. Right? I, I, I do love that it went there. I thought that was really nice. Yeah, that is something none of the others do. Um, 
Yeah. <laughs> Unconvinced, Craig. <laughs> I really am not a fan of this one. What can I say? It's so funny. I for me, I for the first two thirds of the movie, I was like, this remake gets it. I was like, the things that the f- that the first remake did wrong, this one is doing right. It understands how to make this movie. It felt like it's doing different stories, but they were all still kind of the same stories with different actors, uh, which I didn't a hundred percent love. It also the way it's strung together is very much about it doesn't feel so much like fractured time and stories. Like the first one, it feels like we're learning things as the cop learns things, Muldoon learns things. It feels like we're seeing it all through her eyes, which I also didn't love. And then at the end, I was like, oh, this movie is like going out of its way to be terrible. Uh, it felt it felt like it was making really, really bad choices. at the. Also, the way it delivers, it delivers information, the whole movie is stupid. It felt like it was written by a dum-dum. No, I, I like that. I like that we have no. the other cop like investigating it. I like that this is the first no, movie no, no, where not someone that actually guy. says grunt. It's t- I like kind of grudge. I like that he said <laughs> I think grudge. But like, came back from Japan. That other so cop funny. who shows up and he's like, "Oh, he never went in the house. Never seen a cop do that before." And you're like, "That's just exposition. That's not a normal human conversation. It's purely there for me. I don't like that." Um, but I do agree. I do also agree with what you said, Bennett, about um, aesthetically. It's like it's not trying anything but it's doing something right it's like it's not doing there's anything a nice, new. there's a nice burnish on it i don't know the shots but yeah the shots look nice I think. I, there were a lot of shots that i liked looking at yeah it's and it's not a carbon copy of a film that came two years before it you know it's i don't know it's sure. nice to be different and again like i said the image there's some images that'll stick with you i mean i i think the other films at least the 2002 film can say that i can't really i don't think the 2004 one can really say that you know this one lynn shay cutting her fingers off that's a that's a fucking bananas image but all but but also one that i've seen before right it's also it's not like a brand new image <laughs> i don't know if i've ever seen someone cut their own fingers off in a movie oh really maybe not that methodically, i definitely but... <laughs> but i liked it i thought it was grimy the movie's grimy. Yeah, Jim, I'm going to side with you. I'm going to say this movie lost me way earlier than it lost you, though. I'm going to say it was the opening credits for me. Um, when <laughs> oh, they do the, like, oh, here's the, you know, the curse. They they all open with the same thing. But this one just felt like they were like, how do we make a movie scary? Boo. <laughs> it's just yeah, like a like little creepy imagery like, that's really vague. It's uh, the, the, awful. That's credits. It feels a little outdated so in that respect. It feels very mid aughts Like it feels like Monster Energy. I think that's intentional, right? Because the uh-huh. end, we ca- oh, we get to the end in like oh four, oh five, oh six. It's that's why 05. it has that shit yeah. like butt rock over the over yeah, some exactly. Of the scenes. We get to yeah. the end credits, and it's that. like oh. it's like Crazy Town or something playing over the end credits. It's very much centering itself in I... the. Yeah, this is a period 2000s. piece, Craig, and I don't think you're giving it respect for like yeah. really kind of nailing the uh, nailing the feel. That's that's the kind of stuff that people say is good about movies like uh, that Ty West movie about pizza. People uh-huh. love yeah. love his approach <laughs> to being like, ooh, the credits kind of feel like they're from this era, but they're super digital, so they don't actually uh-huh. feel like it. And everyone's like, oh, you're so smart. This movie's doing the same thing. It's just doing it for 2006, and it's doing it better. This is a better movie than the, the and, pizza movie. And more aesthetically correct. It feels more like 2006 than pizza movie feels like 1970s. Maybe I'm being a little too harsh to judge a movie by the credits, but I'll, I'll go all the way to the first scene when they have Kayako <laughs> in a garbage bag and she grabs her ankle. That was I liked so that. stupid. I liked the Come breathing on. garbage bag. Yeah, sure, but... When Jackie Weaver's at the grocery store... And all the meat's like rotten and all the flies are in the meat. Come on. That was scary. Wasn't that a little scary? All the offal. Come on. Is it awful or awful? Awful? I thought it was awful. (laughs) Awful? I I am not 
a huge fan of modern horror in general because I think it's just like a competition to be like, ooh, my movie's scary. Like, and you know who wins? You know who wins? We do. Bennett Glaze. <laughs> <laughs> you know what didn't make any sense in this movie? This what? is a thing that doesn't make any sense to me. How come uh, the movie's in 2004, 5, 6, every main character drives a super well-preserved car from the 70s or 80s? Uh, this movie did did seem like it was kind of yeah like go for some what are, of, uh, what are they all uh, the, wealthy like the, the, that period look but everyone else drives a car that's just of the period it's like the love witch do you guys ever watch the love witch Frankie where you're like all the main it, yeah. characters are living in the 1960s but everyone in the background is living in 2007 or something and you're like what is this movie trying to do aesthetically but I, that one at it, least does it well I yeah. disagree. <laughs> I like the love <laughs> It does it in an incredibly confusing way. <laughs> will know that I famously loved and have written about the love witch for Switcher. So October I, Horror Year One. <laughs> right. Um, I I agree with you. I happen to think that's one of the virtues of Giller as a filmmaker is that the time periods for all of her films just feel so fucking weird and. Yeah, it doesn't feel weird to me. It just feels like the main characters fetishize an era. They all find each other because they're all like, "You also fetishize," which I know people like that. I know people who dress like it's 1975, uh, and they meet other people who dress like it's 1975, and they fall in love. Right? It's I've seen it, uh, but it just feels like a it feels like a movie about a subculture, <laughs> in the same way that like uh, that like Spring Breakers is. I I'm gonna start dressing like it's 2004. I'm gonna get back into Abercrombie and Fitch. I think. Well, that, that was going to be my question as somebody who uh, has not seen this movie, and I will not, but to even things <laughs> Oh, out, come on. <laughs> it's like 94 minutes of your life. To even things out, I'm going to side with you and say that it, I, I liked it. It sounds good, right? I'm making a case for it. Come on. Do um, you want to see Lynn Shay cut her fingers off? Do you want to see Frankie Faison's rotting corpse? Come on. I'll, I was going to ask you guys that if you found there was any reason to it being set set other than to be contemporaneous with i think it's just to start as a prequel it's just so they can make it kind of yeah like an immediate prequel sequel yeah yeah well i frank i I don't know if you missed this but a character literally leaves the house in 2004 and flies to the u.s it's like you know for a movie made in 2020 it's like oh it's a virus film too kind of no that's funny i didn't think about that but um so bennett maybe i'm a little harsh to judge it by the credits and the first scene in the second scene, the, f- <laughs> <laughs> the first time we meet Detective Muldoon, <sighs> again, it's just like it's a tempting elevated horror in that way that's like every character is going to be traumatized. Sure. My main <laughs> takeaway from this film is just a sweeping overall generalization that I think holds a bit of merit, but it's just so much about how horror has shifted to no longer just being about like unsuspecting teens on a road trip who encounter evil and like these films start out fun and then it's like oh no here's Leatherface you know like stuff like that this movie we have a couple who's debating whether they should abort their baby that may have a rare disease we have a husband and wife the wife has dementia and he's trying to humanely end her life The star detective is a single mother whose husband just died of cancer. We have a detective who unsuccessfully shoots himself in the face and then gouges out his own eyeballs because he's so terrified by what he's seen. 
if you've ever seen an A24 film, like these are just like omnipresent themes. I mean, why do you feel trauma has become such a crutch for modern horror films? I wouldn't necessarily say it's anything new. I mean, I, I, I think uh, in The Grudge 2, which is only, I think, made in like 2006, um, just to give you like a, just a very, very brief overview of like, you know, how we wind up back there. Um, Amber Tamblin is like Sarah Michelle Gellar's sister. And she has like a really terrible relationship with her mother who it is, I think implied is dying of cancer. And she is like sent to go, you know, pick up Sarah Michelle Gellar and like bring her back. And there's quite a lot of agita. Uh, there's a lot of like implied sort of like, you know, oh, you never do anything right. So I don't know that like, I don't know, tacking on a little bit of a like tragic backstory or, a little? you know, uh, well, <laughs> I, I, you know, I don't know that that's anything new. I feel like it's just, it's always been kind of an easy screenwritery trick to make us, you know, care about a character more. And, uh, you know, I, 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 a movie that does as many things well as this one does, I'm not going to fault for some of its hacky shortcuts, you know? I also, I'm going to side with what Ben said earlier, which is this movie, it does have those things. It does put those things there, but it doesn't do like a hereditary 20 minute long breakdown in the middle of the movie where we're just talking about how the whole movie is about trauma. Yeah. It's and not the ghost like, it doesn't like take it, the form of her dead husband or anything like it that. Doesn't you know, it doesn't go way out of its way to be like, look what I'm about, right? It puts it there, but it doesn't really, it doesn't go into it as much as it could have. <laughs> And I, I don't know, I, I think that to me, that, that's in keeping with the sort of tonal uh, whiplash of the film that I described, its sort of willingness to go from kind of sentiment to grotesquery. I feel like, like giving it that kind of like, you know, respectable sort of melodramatic window dressing and then, you know, having people's like fucking arms flying off and, you know, people like shitting themselves and whatever. Like that, you know, <laughs> there's something sort of radical in that juxtaposition. You know, I'm making myself laugh here. I'm sorry. <laughs> I think I have some insight on why. I don't think though. anyone shits themselves. I'm sorry. <laughs> What's it? Cult- I, oh, I did. I did halfway through the movie. I, I Unrelated did, yeah. to the film, it just happened. <laughs> Um, I was like, ah, and then, uh, and then it happened. Um, the, uh, I think I have some insight on why culturally it's happening, right? Is that is smart people, smart people ruin all art because they want to, because here's the thing, art, this is, sorry, I, stop me whenever you want me to stop. Um, I have a lot of feelings about this. That's why uh, I ask. <laughs> art, art is meant to be a thing that you, ex- you experience and it, and it causes you to feel things, Right. But uh, but smart people want art to tell them things, right? We live in Banksy's world now, where in order for a thing to have value, it has to have a super overt cultural message. This is It's not only just a thing that audiences presumably want. It's a thing producers want. It is, it is how all of the indie film world operates. It's how you get funding. It's how you get into Sundance Labs. It's how any, any grant you're applying for asks you, even genre films, I know this, uh, even genre film grants ask you to justify why your film is going to matter. Uh, as if... As if you could make an art that doesn't matter, right? As if you could make something that is effective and makes your audience scared and makes them feel something, makes them poop their pants, uh, but, but like, it's not overtly social enough, so it shouldn't exist. Um, that's the world we live in right now. So we, it's, it's because people want, people want to be able to watch a horror movie and be like, but, but still be like, I'm too smart for trash, which is, yeah. it's, it's inane. But that is the world we live in right now, is that in order to make any movie, unless you can fund it yourself, right? The, the, the movies that are not trying to, like, hammer a message into you are getting cheaper and cheaper because there just isn't 
a machine that's interested really in producing things unless they can justify themselves somehow, which is fundamentally missing the point of what art is, I think. Yeah, no, I, Jim, I totally agree with you, but I, I bring this up in part because I remember last year, I think it was the Sergio Martino episode. We had talked about, you know, these were, the Italians were a lot of guys who didn't go to art school. You know, they didn't go to film school to learn how to make a shot. They learned by doing it. You know, it's like, how do I do this shot? I don't know. What if we like build something that'll help? Oh, okay, sure. And then it's like, oh yeah, they just, they found a way. Like, I feel like this movie is just so textbook. Like, okay, we're going to have a downtrodden character who has a deep love for a child. But, like, also the child's going to turn into a ghost. <laughs> you know? It's just, like, you hit every, like, I... expected beat. And, Bennett, maybe this should go back to you here because I'm kind of harping on the film. But I just feel like every character was just so predictably, like, this is their form of trauma that there's really nothing to grasp onto on these characters. They're not really characters. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, they're pretty. they're pretty blank. But... In understanding comics, Scott McCloud talks about the concept of masking. You know, you draw a character uh, with sort of non-distinct mm. features. It's easier to imagine. It's easier to map oneself onto them, right? Uh, so maybe that's a little of what's going on here. Uh, maybe you know these are <laughs> these are non-distinct characters, so we can imagine it happening to ourselves. I always bring that up in my film classes as a justification for why I think we're always casting like uh, white guys who look kind of nor- just like kind of basically b- the same, b- yeah, blandsome, yeah. right? They're yeah. all yeah. Every, we're just like this feels like the most neutral for an American audience. It's just kind of like kind of handsome white guy who you wouldn't pick out of a lineup. It's because of that, Scott McCloud. You can't be too you can't be too irregular looking and yeah. like open a movie anymore. I don't think no. you got to be named Chris and pretty yeah. pretty bland. Yeah. In the first scene where we see that cop, uh, her kid is scared. His dad just died three months ago, and she kneels down next to the bed and to comfort him says, well, nothing bad's going to happen to me, <laughs> which is completely, again, I think this movie was written by a dum-dum. Uh, completely insane. Also, she's a cop, and she's like, what do we do when we're scared? We close our eyes and count to five. Any dangerous scenario that a cop is thinking about is a dangerous scenario where closing your eyes is a bad idea. <laughs> I like that some of the, the, again, to this movie feeling a little bit, like, outdated. Um, I, I like that some of the details really feel like something that would happen in, like, a really, like, gritty, like, graphic novel. Like, it could have like been the Frank guy, Miller. like, shooting himself in the head and, like, surviving, you know, and having that, like, horrible, like, disfigurement. Like, that feels like something that would happen in, like, a, in, like, a Mark Millar comic or something. <laughs> like, something, you know, like a sub Frank Miller sort of a thing. Yeah. Like, that, I, there's a character in, like, in like Preacher, I think, who has something similar happen, who has, like, sure. horrible like, facial disfigurement from, like, surviving a suicide attempt. That feels like something out of that. So uh, so do so many of the details. Um, so many, like, the, the grotesque little details. And I don't know. For as indistinct and as, you know, by the books and, like, stock, you know, prestige TV character, all of the, the, the you know, the people in the film are, I don't know. They're turning in. They're all mostly, like, overqualified actors turning in, like, capable performances. And then, uh, yeah, I don't know. I think that the, the, the film moves pretty well from like really gross set piece to really gross set piece it's not quite as like episodic as the other films it's it's more like weaving together kind of a series of narratives um yeah i don't know it's not perfect but it's it's four stars out of five it's pretty close to perfect (laughs) you know that is not equal to an 80 for me by the way that's really anywhere in the ballpark it could be anywhere in the ballpark of like you know 80 to i don't know like 93 that's like a you can be an a a low a yeah yeah yeah. Speaking of, I think, good things from the movie, I think I uh, I want 
John Cho to comfort me with my when my nose is bleeding. That's <laughs> yeah, a John thing Cho I gives a great I want him to come take movie. care of me. <laughs> that was nice. Yeah, I was so happy to see him. Having the, the the shower scene, having a having a man in the in the classic shower scene, that's kind of a subversion. Come on, sure. I mean, I saw twenty twenty folks. But sure, that's oh yeah. I, mean, <laughs> I don't know. I, I the fact that this movie came out in that sort of like cursed like pre pandemic sort of winter. I don't know. Makes it feel appropriately like grim and like <laughs> portentous. I, I I don't know. I kind of like that. So I think my last like I'm an old man shaking a fist at the sky about this movie. <laughs> I, I think a part of it just like. It's hard to latch onto characters in this. I mentioned that. Um, my question is, why can't horror laugh anymore? I, this is... I <laughs> I have a lot of theories about how um, you can kind of track the near future of movies by looking at what the WWE is doing. <laughs> uh, because, it, because it taps into similar cultural uh, impulses, but it moves faster, right? Because it's just constantly happening. And I think you can sort of track this, like, attitude era shifting into, uh, like, more modern wrestling where where wrestlers are no longer supernatural creatures. They're just people. Sort of just presages, like, the Dark Knight and stuff. But I think we're still sort of living in the echoes of that, of the early 2000s, sort of, like, we need stuff to be super... I, I guess it's post-9-11, right? Where we're just like, we need stuff to be grim now. Uh, there's, like, there just is Joker. Well, pre-Joker. I mean, there's no... no, I mean, it's uh, Joker from the Dark Knight, you know. <laughs> oh, oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's just, like, no room for, like, levity. People don't... I think people don't think that people want to have flights of fancy anymore. They want things to just be, like, so real. It's also... Can dumb. I say something maybe controversial? Always. No. <laughs> I don't believe you can. <laughs> I fucking hate horror comedies. I really can think of... I can probably name the ones I like on, like, one hand. Honestly, like, I think, like, the, the Motor Media movies are, like, the only horror comedies that I like. I really... Well, well what do you qualify as a horror comedy, though? Uh... Like, have you watched, like, From Beyond? I wouldn't call that a horror comedy. I wouldn't call it a horror comedy either. It's a funny horror movie, yeah. But it laughs. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Like, stuff that's, like, slapsticky or stuff that's really, like excessively tongue-in-cheek sure um, that's a different world though i think i feel like and correct me if i'm wrong craig i feel like what craig is talking about is like there used to be a whole world of horror that horror involved movies, like, yeah. like street trash the kind of shit that i'm excited about is what i'm thinking um <laughs> come yeah. on there is one funny society joke in this movie when... <laughs> right i'm not talking about tucker and dale versus evil i'm talking more <laughs> about how just like films had a sense of humor and even in like yeah. I, you know i go to the italians a lot because it's like so many other sure. kills are just like what's the most gruesome stuff, thing yeah. we can do and it's like oh sure. my god they just did that you know mm-hmm. i feel like it, it does go back to something that jim had pointed to before with like smart people being in charge because like i think the related thing to that is um people don't want to be seen as not taking violence seriously. Right. Yeah. Not necessarily even from like a canceled standpoint, but sure. like not to not be thinking about the consequences of like their images, which, you know, I guess there, I could understand that a little bit, but you can still be thinking about the consequences of your, like, as Jim said, art is supposed to produce a reaction in the audience. And there's no rule that says laughing at something doesn't mean you're all, not giving it thought and i feel like it's also i mean maybe this is extrapolating too much but you know the trauma thing in movies feels so parallel to tv being on the rise and sure prestige tv is all dramas and the idea that everything has to be serious and 
you know, there's, you know, humor is gone kind of idea is something that TV sort of invented. And despite me thinking I hating TV and only thinking of TV as sitcoms, like that's all I understand it as, but that's not what most people or what most Americans or people who make movies and entertainment uh, think of it as. So I don't know, but it's, it's annoying. I, I, Although I, I find like Freddy versus Jason like an annoying movie to watch, it's more fun to watch than Freddy. Sure. I let me just loop back. For, first of all, wait. I have two things. One, uh, Frankie agreeing with me is the most justified I've ever felt <laughs> in anything I've ever said. Uh, I feel the smartest I've ever been right now. Uh, also, the the reason I brought up the WWE earlier is because if we look at the state of professional wrestling right now, I feel like we're at the beginning of a pivot to bring levity and absurdity back and and flights of fancy i think we are on our way i think it's uh it's a little bit different it's all it's a little more orange cassidy now for anyone who knows what that means i think we're i think we're moving in a in what i feel to be a positive direction i hope that's good i feel like twitter (laughs) dying has definitely changed things sure (laughs) yeah yeah. (laughs) bennett i'm gonna return it to a happy place for you i gotta say the end of this movie when she's in the house like getting ready to burn it down that totally reminded me of the haunted mansion was that just like a happy place for you <laughs> no i to be honest i only watched the haunted mansion once i don't know if i remember the the plot all that well do they burn the well, no no just with eddie like, murphy just burns everywhere houses just down. like ah, i'm oh. talking about like the actual ride like, where it's, it's like i like, want to yeah. show you something yeah i want to show you something <laughs> oh i i don't know it's it's pretty par for the course with this series you know uh, at least in the american takes in this series just uh, written dumber it's like the yeah, same idea uh, but written dumber now now i i let's stop. let's agree to disagree um i i do i don't know i i kind of admire how like i, I actually think it's a bit of an anachronism how like totally humorless this movie is because even stuff like hereditary that's like trauma porn i think i don't know gets credit that it probably doesn't deserve for being like darkly comic and i don't know i it's kind of laughing funny. at stuff in hereditary there's a part yeah. in hereditary when he's like in the high school class and his friend he like look his friend sends him a text message and he turns around and his friend's going like this like that's kind of funny like that's a that's a also, moment of levity everything, in a pretty good everything movie. with the little sister in that movie is funny yeah there's almost no humor in the grudge but i do think the bit with david when damien bachir's character has the two like dvds and he's like uh you can watch 48 that was hours super fun having just watched 48 hours pretty recently holy moly i literally well, don't think there's the a movie only with two more movies they have are cop movies right they're like we have 48 yeah, hours also, in the french connection bit. yeah um, I, I do think the very ending of this film is incredibly effective. I like how like grim it is. Uh, Andrew, I, I probably said the word grim a hundred times. I, I really apologize. Uh, Andrea Riseborough getting kind of like dragged to her doom. It's very saw, very like someone like you know screaming in the in this sort Except of like saw trap room. They a hundred percent missed the chance to have her burn her own son to death. They they walked well, right up to it and then didn't do it. I didn't do that. <laughs> I don't. I don't see why they didn't do it. That's you want to build your movie around trauma. You want to have the reveal at the end that she has the wrong boy. You don't even have to show it, right? We just see her do the thing, and then she cuts to her. House, and then the ending's the same, but without the extra boy in the background. And you're like, oh no, she burned her son to death. Also, what I do like about the ending is that it confirms that burning the house down doesn't help. Yeah, I like that. Because I, I hate that. Movies. I hate the... that as a fucking answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so easy. Come on. Yeah, too easy. So we're like, oh, great. So there's no cure for the grudge. And grudges can happen anywhere now. Uh, that's nice. But it does feel like, to me, it feels like the, the 2002 movie 
has so much ripeness in it, has so much you could grab onto. And the 2004 remake gets a little bit of it, but really misses. And the 2020 remake, for me, also gets elements of it, but really misses on other elements. So for both of them, it felt like the filmmakers were like going out of their way to make worse movies than they could have. I, it feels like such fertile ground to me. It feels like you could make such an incredible American remake of this. And I just don't know why it feels so easy <laughs> to not make it worse than it has to be. Yeah. I, you might say that this, this premise is fertile ground where Nicholas Pesh planted a, a beautiful sunflower for all of us to, <laughs> all of us to admire. <laughs> Let's tie this all together. Normally we do a, a pick where we pick one movie, but... I'm intrigued. Let's power rank these. Bennett, why don't we get you to go first? Because I think your answer is the most blatant. <laughs> How do you rank these three films, one through three? Um, so I would say, yeah, the 2021 is number one with a bullet. I would say uh, uh, The Grudge 2, if we're counting that, is the second best. Then I would say, yeah, the original 2002 film. Then I would, of course, say the uh, the 04 remake uh I think is again. I don't think it's like way weaker than the original, but I don't know why. Why? Why remake your film but worse? <laughs> okay, Frankie, how about you? You have not seen the 2020 Grudge, so you are excluded from that. But I think I know where you're going to put it. <laughs> oh yeah, it's, a, it's better. Um, but serious, I do think um, that actually the American one is the Grudge. The 2004 one is higher for me than the original just because that international that explicitly international element adds more interesting stuff that the original like the original one has interesting stuff with what the ghost means but it has that and some more with the american one and so that one one for me well i guess 2020 is one for me then all right jim how about you I uh, I put them all on about even footing. I feel like the you know the first one has uh, gets credit for being the first one, right? Like that's worth something for it, even though it's actually the fifth if you count the shorts and the third if you don't count the shorts. Um, but for me, all three of them have some really vital ideas, and all three of them sort of explore kind of different things elements of the same idea kind of happenstantially and all three of them kind of missed the mark in different ways um i think they're all kind of fun and they all they all have that same like kind of the same heart of the idea of the grudge but i don't think any of them explores it in the way that i want to see it explored um so if somebody was like jim i'm up i, I want to watch one of the first grudges which one would you say? I, I mean, I would say I have really high hopes for the American Grudge 2. Maybe try that one first. Uh, but, like, in terms of the other three, it kind of feels like a toss-up to me. Okay. I got to go chronologically with these. I think they get progressively worse, and the drop-off mm, is steep. Yeah. Um, I really enjoy <laughs> the the 2002 Japanese Grudge. I think he just does a lot of interesting things in that that... I'm kind of with you all on seeing it the first time. I was like, that's it. But seeing it again, it's like, I do enjoy this. Like, I do think it gets stronger when you revisit it. But personally, like, this is just going to kind of segue into next week. But I think one of the scariest scenes in film history is in Kiyoshi Kurosawa's film Pulse. When the guy goes into a room, there's a ghost in there. 
it starts walking towards him. It doesn't touch him. It just like gets in his face. That to me is terrifying. And I, I think Shimizu does a good job of that in the grudge with just like, it's uncomfortable with these ghosts. Like, oh, look, there's a bloody woman. Like, oh, like she's lizard crawling down the <laughs> stairs and making slither noises. Like, I don't like that. Like, <laughs> so I think it has some great moments. But as a whole, I do wish it was a little stronger. I'll, I'll say that. Um, Bennett, you are on the clock. You got to run in a minute. We are talking next week about Kiyoshi Kurosawa. Um, we're going to be talking about the films Cure and Daguerreotype. We're just going in alphabetical order. Ben, you want to just give us a quick intro to things to look forward to next week? Yeah, if you like slow-moving ghosts, let me tell you, <laughs> Daguerreotype has a very, very slow-moving ghost. Well, you have to be end. slow to be captured in a Daguerreotype. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, you know, I didn't even think about it, that it's 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 probably moving at the speed of like the, the photo process. Yeah. Interesting, interesting. A little preview of, of next week's discussion. Um, yeah, uh, and, and Cure is uh, really just a, just a scary, upsetting, uh, really bleak movie um, that you can watch on the Criterion channel if you've got it. Um, and I'm sure it's you know rentable elsewhere. So folks, uh, you know, make sure to make sure to watch your your Kiyoshi Kurosawa films in preparation for for what's sure to be a great discussion next week. So that's going to be next week. We'll also be joined by Lucille Parker. She plays bass in my country band. She is a ton of fun. Any closing thoughts on The Grudge before we call it a day? You got everything out of your system? Folks, conventional wisdom, you know, uh, there's nothing nothing particularly wise about most conventional wisdom. Am I right, folks? And I think that's definitely the case when when, when one looks at the reception of 2020's The Grudge, (laughs) now also called The Grudge... The untold chapter even that uh, give dumb. it a shot that, that's really fucking dumb but i like that that's wait the is that they like. changed Stupid the title they movies. renamed they, it. they they released i it thought you were just Media saying that with a new name no no it's like a live die repeat situation if you wow. bought the movie you bought the grudge the the untold chapters wow. chapter singular yeah anyway folks uh give it a shot frankie any departing uh words of wisdom uh, no no <laughs> Perfect. Skip these movies. Don't watch. Listen. Face like in other movies that are better. I think if you watch any of them without having watched the other ones, you're gonna have a good time. That's fair. That's fair. And on that note, why don't we call it a day? I wouldn't watch all three. No, you don't need to do that for sure. All right. Well, thank you for listening. I know it's it's been a while since we've recorded, but you know we're back. We're wading into the horror. Year 5 of October Horror is underway. It's going strong. It will be all month. And if you made it this far in the episode, feel free to leave a SoundCloud comment. Let us know what some of your favorite Japanese horror films are. There are so many great ones, so let's just keep this thing rolling. We're going to be back. Kurosawa next week. Bennett, Frankie, Jim, as always, thank you for joining. This was a ton of fun. Hey, keep it spooky. Yeah, thanks for having us. That is all we've got for today. Thank you, and we'll be back shortly. 